I think we are sort of in between stages, right? Like, and I think the the last time it was really like this was the jump from patronage to professionalism in the late 18th century, um, where there was a gap of about 40 years where basically no writer could make a living. Welcome to the book I had to write. This is the podcast where I talk to authors about their most compelling stories and why these journeys matter to anyone who wants to publish. I'm Paul Zakshevsky. I'm a book coach, podcaster, and essayist. On the subject of writers and failure, there's a lot to say. And today's guest, Stephen Marsh, doesn't shy away from any of it. Like the challenge of making a living, always precarious, but never more so than today with the rise of digital publishing. Or the fact that rejection is endemic to the writing life, no matter how famous you are. The Diary of Anne Frank was rejected 15 times, A Wrinkle in Time 26. Even Lolita, perhaps the greatest novel of the 20th century, was turned down by every serious publisher that Nabokov approached. What I find strange is that anyone finds it strange that there's so much rejection, Marsh writes. Stephen's new book is called On Writing and Failure, and it's a terrific little meditation and call to arms for writers. He's also the author of a half dozen books, including The Next Civil War and The Unmade Bed, The Messy Truth About Men and Women in the 21st Century. Stephen was a longtime contributor to Esquire magazine, and his op-eds and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Walrus, and many others. He's based in Toronto, where I talked to him about living with rejection and the state of writing and art making in Canada. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks very much for doing the show. My pleasure. And congratulations on the, on the new book. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. There's a funny anecdote that you start with at the top of the book involving you and the short story writer and novelist Nathan Englander and it's also about Philip Roth. For folks that won't be familiar with your book, can you recount that anecdote here? Well, I mean, it was sort of, there was a friend of mine who was, um, she was trying to sell this piece about her death of her mother. It was a really good piece. She just couldn't find a home for it. And, you know, I was trying to help her through and I was trying to get her, I'm giving her editors names and so on. And she was like, do your, do you, does it ever get easier? Like, do you get a thicker skin? And, I didn't have an answer, so I told her the story, which is that um, uh, I've been, you know, Nathan Engler moved into my neighborhood just before COVID, and we, um, you know, to this day, actually, we haven't been in each other's houses, but we would sit around in my backyard, and I, I got this fire pit, and we would drink and complain, and, um, and you know, I, I asked him, like, do you ever, did you ever get a thicker skin? Like, and he didn't have an answer. So he told me a story and he asked Philip Roth this when he was about to release a new novel. He was like, does this ever, he was having lunch with him or something. And he said, do you, does it ever get easier? Do you ever get a thicker skin? And Philip Roth said, you never get a thicker skin. It just gets thinner and thinner until they can see right through you. So that, I mean, the point of that anecdote is really that, um, 
you know, there's never a point where you feel like you've achieved success and that therefore everything is okay and the struggle is over. The struggle, the struggle never ends, even when you're Philip Roth. Ooh, if it's bad for Philip Roth, what hope is there for the rest of us? Yeah. So you talk about a lot of different writerly failures in the book. And um, one kind that seems to come up is just the issue of earning a living. Mm -hmm. But you say something interesting that you kind of came up kind of working inside, I think the phrase you use is crumbling institutions. Can you tell me a bit more about what you meant by that? Well, um, you know, the first way that I was going to make a living was as a professor, was as a Shakespeare professor. Um, and I actually got a tenure track job and gave it up because my wife got a job here and we moved back for that. And but, you know, academia and the humanities are, you know, crumbling. There's like a new Nathan Heller piece in The New Yorker. I've written about it before, too. Like, it's it's well known that it's, I mean, in that piece, it revealed that there are 60 English literature undergraduates at Harvard right now, which is a bit ridiculous, right, that it's that, it's that low. Then I moved from there to novels where they, you know, that that is also like sales for novels have been declining for 25, 30 years. And also journalism where you know like the number of journalists jobs is about a third of what it was in 2005 i i only ever tasted really briefly the the golden age of of uh, magazine journalism um and so yeah like every like they, these institutions are have all been in decline my entire life and you know there are things that have been replaced and there are things that are very interesting and new opportunities that have presented themselves podcasting and so on but um yeah like the the traditional ways of making a living, they've all been in decline my whole life, for sure. So there's this kind of failure, you know, this this potential, this kind of difficulty in just being a writer. And you kind of allude to this in your last answer. There's also just been this kind of incredible revel, digital revolution. I mean, the internet's been around, obviously, for a few decades now, but things seem to really sped up in terms of like the death of print or the putative death of print. And certainly the rise of a lot of online publications, although even those are really unstable. Super unstable. They, they, ne they never last longer than a few years, really. I mean, what do you find yourself telling um, other writers, younger writers who are just struggling with the kind of the realities of the digital publishing now? Oh, I don't get, I mean, I don't give anyone advice, you know, I mean, like the, what that, like I, as I say in the book, like good writers offer advice, great writers offer condolences. I mean, I don't really have any, advice for anyone except you know you're going to have to roll with the punch um you know i think we are sort of in between stages right like and i think the the last time it was really like this was the jump from patronage to professionalism in the late 18th century um where there was a gap of about 40 years where basically no writer could make a living um like, like and i think we are we are in a similar space for that like a lot of creative industries really um this transition is incredibly rough um but you know like the the advice i give is like you know this is kind of you know what this is like this is that this is the reality that we're dealing with and you know you're going to have to deal with it if you want to actually make stuff but that's not very useful either, really. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's not super, like, get used to it is not super helpful advice, I understand. It's interesting, though, because, you know, this isn't the first time, as you're suggesting, that writers are challenged this way. And you use this really great example of even someone like Samuel Johnson, who it sounds like was a figure who was this transitional figure from patronage to having to earn money. Yeah, he was the exact, I mean, he started in patronage and then ended up, 
in professionalism. I mean, the English, the dictionary, his dictionary was that move, right? Where like he was able to make a living off of off of that dictionary. And he was, yeah, I mean, he was very to, to me, he was very much a recognizable figure in that he's out there doing everything. Like he's out there just like the 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 scope of what he's trying to write, like what he's writing during this period is like he's judging poetry contests, he's translating um you know Latin poetry, he's writing his own occasional verse for the magazines, he's uh hustling uh like he's telling life stories of hookers, he's writing life stories of other writers, he's editing Shakespeare, he's just doing everything of every level um that could possibly pay him money, and of course it's never enough. Right. It, like it was it was it was a definite struggle. And I mean, he's also Samuel Johnson. So he's like maniacally, compulsively um, creating this stuff as well. But, yeah, I mean, I think a figure like Samuel Johnson is much more of our age than, say, of our moment than, say, even older living writers like Salman Rushdie or something like that. Like there will not be a kid Salman Rushdie anymore. There won't be a kid Margaret Atwood anymore. Like that's just, that 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 world is gone. So, and you, you're kind of alluding to this. I mean, one of the forms of failure is just the failure to publish, like the challenge of publishing and not just today, but you use the example, these kind of classic examples, whether it's James Joyce or Agatha Christie, I think you talk, um, there are several different examples. Well, James Joyce is a really interesting example because, you know, obviously the greatest novelist of the 20th century never made a living at it. Um, like never came close to making a living at it. That's not really surprising given the nature of the books that he wrote, but he was also just um, really incompetent. Like he did not know how to run his life. Like he was, like he was, um, he just couldn't win for losing. Not that he was, <laughs> not that he wasn't a hustler and not that he wasn't smart because he was, it was, he was just one of those guys, you meet them who it's just never going to work out for them. They can just never make anything stick. And I mean, the story I tell in the story is like, he just couldn't get a job at an Italian technical college in Como. It was like applying for this job. You know, they make him write these three days of examinations and give a job talk. The job talk he gives is his lecture on um, Robinson Crusoe, which is, you know, literally one of the greatest lectures ever given on a novel. I mean, it's totally extraordinary. If you, Very few people have read it, but it is a wonderful book, wonderful essay. And um, they were like, no, your qualifications don't work. So, you know, it's like, yeah, you're James Joyce. You've already written Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Portrait, sorry, you've already written Dubliners. You're in the middle of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And these dudes think you can't speak English. This seems to me very typical, right? This seems to me, or particularly... Um, exemplary of the discrepancy between ability and the marketplace, if you will. Um, very, the, the most extreme case, maybe. It's interesting, because when I thought of the word failure, what occurred to me is just what happens very often, what I hear about, especially with emerging writers, which is just things not coming out the way you hope they did. But that's not at all what you're talking about. You're talking about really great writers, and that this disconnect between their ability and the great work they're putting out and actually the ability to publish, they're really different things. Well, I think there's like multiple layers of failure. So there's, there's the career aspect of failure, but I think also in writing, there's very much um, failure is inherent to the process. So, you know, most writers, even successful writers, most of their books are failures. Um, I think the other thing to think about is like when you're writing, there's very few processes where you're throwing out more of what you do, right? Where you're like, you're making things and then you're like, oh, I hate that. And you're throwing it out. Like you're actually, the process of it involves an, an inherent 
failure. Like, like the task of it involves acknowledging your own failures all the time. In fact, that's the biggest part of it, right? Is like going over what is wrong about what you've been saying, right? And how you can say it better and how you can do it better. And like the act of refinement, which to me is the act of writing, um, is really this process of rejecting failures. And then underneath that, I think you have the sort of deeper failure of writing, which is the most profound aspect of it, which is what you're trying to communicate between your privacy, your private language, and communicate that to another privacy in another time, in another language, in another place, in another person's private life, in, in their own person. There's just this a gap. There's this enormous gap between your intentions and what is received. Like this book came out of a bunch of commonplace, like I, I used to collect these stories in my mind and in a small notebook because they made me feel better, right? Like they make me feel much better than the stories of writers eventually succeeding. Like those, those stories are of no use to me, no practical use to me. These stories I found much more useful. But when I started to stitch them together, I'm like, well, there's a reason why all this failure is so endemic to this business. And that is because failure is really inherent to the career stuff, the process of doing it, and the fundamentals of the task you're trying to do. So it's like it is, failure is this kind of centering uh, reality of writing experience. So why is it worth persevering then? That's a question everyone should ask themselves. And I think, you know, another thing is people tend not to persevere for the right reasons, right? Like people, people persevere in writing for um, a lot of bad reasons. Like, and, and, you know, a lot of great work gets made for money and a lot of pure crap is made for the best possible reasons, right? Like, I think, you know, it's certainly not, it's certainly not that, um, you know, the argument of the nobility of the soul or something like that, like, that's a very little interest to me. Like, I don't think that, I don't think that explains why we, why we write or why we persevere. Um, I mean, I think a huge amount of it is I'm going to show those bastards. Like that's what, like, that's, that is like a, that is like a huge impulse behind this. You know, cause one of the more interesting parts of writing the book is when I came across the few people who, who experienced no resistance, who had no nothing to persevere through, you know, the people like, you know, this is particularly the post-war American types, like the guy who wrote Joe Gold's Secret for The New Yorker or Ralph Ellison, where really they were, you are the greatest writer in the world, write whatever you want. And they couldn't write anything, right? They like, they, they couldn't, they couldn't find a way to say anything. And I think there is, and even when you think about someone like J.K. Rowling, where it's like she, you know, can do whatever she wants. So what does she do? She starts over as like a random bad novelist in Britain, right? Like because she—that's the only way that she writing crime fiction. Yeah, right. Like, and that's the only way she can experience some kind of resistance. Although she got sick of that resistance pretty fast when she realized, like, you know, she wasn't going to sell any books. Um, but the the re like resist you need the resistance in order to have the impulse to write i think i think that's a it's a big thing as for 
like I mean, I think I write compulsively. I think I write out of like some kind of like the other way people are gamblers or alcoholics. That's kind of the way that I that I write. You know, I think uh, like I, I think other I would never question other people's motives because I don't I'm not I'm not sure they're relevant. What inspired this book? You talked a few minutes ago about a notebook that you kept with these kind of little stories of failure. Was that the inspiration? Yeah, I mean, that was that was really it. Like I had these. I just sort of kept them for myself, these like little anecdotes. Uh, you know, the fact that Herman Melville wrote a better book every time and couldn't like every time they sold worse, every time he had to dig deeper into his pocket to pay for more for self-publication. The fact that, you know, Billy Budd was in a bread box for like 30 years before it could be published. Um, you know, stories of like Li Bai and Simi Qian and, and Tu Fu, like these writers who these uh, Chinese writers who who really were great geniuses but got nothing. Um, I found them very encouraging, very consoling, and so th I, th to, that was the kind of um, that was the origin of the book. I mean, then you know Dan at Biblioasis said, "Hey, do you want to write this little pamphlet for us?" I said, "I'll write about this," and he said, "Great." I know that you have a PhD in in I think it's early modern drama. You talked about uh, the start of your career as possibly being a Shakespeare uh, scholar. How, did that academic background figure in any way in this book? Well, not really. I mean, you know, uh, there were a few occasional. I mean, I know that Shakespeare had unproduced plays and lost plays. And I mean, it is weird to think of like Shakespeare, like, you know, Shakespeare wrote things that the, the guys were like, mm, I don't think so. This one's not for us. Let's not let's not do that. You know what I mean? And like, I, I think it's important to know, especially for kid writers that, you know, it really doesn't stop. Like, you know, I mean, I didn't put it in the book because it's not really about writing. But I mean, one of my favorite stories is about Steven Spielberg, like trying to sell, I think it was a behind the scenes musical drama or something like that as a television show. And um, he just couldn't sell it. He just couldn't find someone to buy this story idea. And I just keep thinking about like, what was the, what were these meetings like? Like, you know, like it's like, oh, uh, hi, my name's Steven. Oh, hi. Yeah, I invented the 80s. Yeah, I've got a new show. I like I've, everything you remember from the 1980s. Yeah, that was me. Um, I got this television show idea. And they're like, eh, you know, we're just we're just not feeling it, Stephen. But that's, you know, that's the nature of this game, really. And so, you know, the, so my my academic stuff really didn't figure into that very much, except for, you know, a few examples, Middleton and Dan, and John Webster, who I, you know, I knew about their careers and I knew about Shakespeare's career too. But, uh, and I guess they wouldn't be typically well known, but I mean, really the only thing it gave me is I know how to write a literary history, right? And I know what real literary historiography is and I know what, how do you find out what the real stories are and what's nonsense, which, you know, is a pretty important skill when you're, uh, you know, dealing with, first of all, anecdotes, but second of all, in the age that we're living in, where there's just this glut of lies, information, you know, and you, to be able to, yeah. yeah, to be able to figure, you know, that, that that's what I do have from, from my academic life is I know how to tell shit from sunshine, really. And then did the, did the book, I'm just trying to understand the book, um, did it change shape or it, I mean, it sounds like there's uh, this series that basically the, these kind of short, like, they're longer than pamphlets. Well, I tried. I mean, if the process of writing it was in the middle of COVID, um, I'd been fired from everything. I had nothing else to do. Like I, uh, like it was just like I had no other work, and so I decided, okay, I'm just going to do this as perfectly as I can. Like I'm just going to, I'm just going to write this as perfectly as I can. So I 
would get these anecdotes and I would take these notes and then I would handwrite them with a fountain pen, which I've never done before on paper. And, and I would, I would think I would say them, I would think them through completely each section and then write it in a kind of burst so that I had like, so that it was like each one was like a spoken think single thought. And then the other thing that I was determined to do was write a historical, like it is mostly history, as you say. And I didn't want to use the word when ever, right? Like I, I was just like, I'm going to write an entire history book without using the word when, because the word when is a really terrible English word It ruins sentences and it breaks up thought and it, and it, and it distances readers. And so that was, that also required a lot of concentration. So that was, that was the basic process of writing it. This podcast is partly, um, you know, I think for nonfiction writers who are looking to finish their books. It's one of the uh, right. one of the streams of audience. And uh, I think I know what you're going to say, but if you had one piece of advice for, for writers who are trying to finish their books, what would that be? Like, first of all, I, I don't really, as, as I said, like I don't, I write good writers offer advice, great writers offer condolences, but I will tell you that one thing that I've told to writers that just really that with when I talk to other writers about like productivity, because I've gone through periods where I've had to be extremely productive, right? Like where I've had multiple projects on the go, writing columns, right? Like writing columns to stay alive, writing novels at the same time, or like when I was writing my dissertation and I was writing novels and short stories at the same time, like I was, I was in massive production mode. And, um, I don't know how useful this is to other people. Let me just give the, a, a big caveat, but like there's two, th- I, I actually did research into concentration because I was, I wanted to get, as I realized that what I needed wasn't really time. It was concentration. Right. And that re- when I did that research, that really changed my approach to things because there were two things that I learned. One thing is the, amount of prime concentration time you get in a week is about five hours. And the researchers who did that at Harvard said that if you can get five hours of concentrated time, like actual pure concentration time, you'll be like Leonardo da Vinci. You can do anything. <laughs> like it's not a, it, like it sounds like a very short amount of time, but honestly, if you like the, the, the important thing is not necessarily to get these huge blocks of time where you're working, but to get these, like this, the hour where you're, going to do it to be perfect and so what i do and this is the thing that no other writer does but i really believe in is um i sleep the way that bodybuilders eat like i sleep like the question you shouldn't ask is how much sleep do i need you should ask how much sleep can i get because if you if you really want to be productive um like if we're up to me if i could do it i can't i don't have the physical ability to it but i'd sleep 12 hours a day if i could but like that's that's how you and that, that sounds like I'm being lazy. But the truth is that if you're writing, like you're not in, you're not, or you're making like very, you know, because what what survives of writing is the best stuff, right? Like that if you don't do the best stuff, then you just have to go and rewrite it. That really was a writer tip. I've never really given writer tips before. That was a great writer tip, and it, it ended really nicely. But on the other hand, I think it's like it's actually just a sign of my own weird behavior. Yeah, I I love it. But like, I'm so convinced of it. Like when I hear about people going into offices to do creative tasks where it's rude to nap, 
like people in advertising, people who do creative businesses where it's like they're they're not allowed to nap in these places. I'm like, what are you? It's thinking? terrible. It's like going to pump iron without being able to eat all day. It doesn't like it doesn't make any sense to me. A.M. Klein, the Jewish Canadian poet who wrote some of the most fascinating material ever produced in this country, suffered a complete breakdown in his early 40s and never wrote again. He barely even spoke. He sat silently on his porch and the children who had played on his street believed him to be deaf. Scholars demur on the cause of Klein's breakdown. They attribute it partially to overwork and partially to an underlying condition. Later Jewish Canadian writers, Irving Layton, Leonard Cohen, Mordecai Richler, pitied Klein or mocked him. I fear him. I fear him because I know what broke him. The North, the sheer irrelevance of Canadian life, the confrontation with oblivion implicit in living beside the wilderness, the willful indifference to talent that defines Canadian culture. Klein is the ghost that haunts me. There's a little silenced Klein sitting right now in one of the chambers of my heart. So in this new book, you talk about... Um, this Canadian indifference to talent. And mm. I don't know how familiar this will be to listeners outside of Canada, but um, those in Canada, I think, will, will recognize what you're talking about. Can you explain that a bit more to me? Well, I mean, I wrote a big piece about it for the Literary Review of Canada when COVID broke out, where, you know, I said, at one point I said, like, Canada won't love you for what makes you special. It'll love you for what makes you ordinary. And I mean, it is very much a two-edged sword, right? Like, on the one hand, it's it's kind of brutal if you're a talented person. I mean, it, well, you just have to go to America, right? Like, there's just no there's just no choice about it, or somewhere else, or London, or Greece, or you know, or or Cuba. You just you kind of have to go. Um, but on the other hand, like that's why the schools are so good, and why the hospitals are so good, and why and and why you know it's easier for people to it's way easier for talent to emerge from Canada. Than it is to, from it, for it to emerge from places like the states or Britain because there are there is not everything is samey samey and so talent is allowed to rise in a really big way. It just you know there just is a fear and loathing of of excellence that's um, that sees it as a threat to uh, equality fundamentally. And you know I, I guess in some sense it's not wrong. Like excellence is a threat to equality. Excellence does show that we're not all the same and we don't all deserve the same. Like, I guess, what they call in Australia, the tall poppy syndrome? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because it's like, they every country has its own version of this. Right. right? Except for America. Right? Like, they, and, and, you know, and the South has it. In the South, they call it the crabs in a bucket. Right? Like, one crab gets out, they all drag it back. Right? Like, there's a lot of different countries that have this feeling. Although I think in Canada, it is particularly extreme. You know, I, I, I was looking through your columns. I saw a decade and a half ago, you wrote in the Toronto Star that, you know, young Canadian writers have to go to the States, what you just said. You gave right. examples like Jan Martel and Sheila Hetty, David Besmogas. Um, you yourself are notable for publishing both um, in Canada and the States. I mean, do you think things have gotten better or changed? Do you see any difference in the last decade? Not really. I mean, no, I, I wouldn't say I've seen any change, really. Which is kind of extraordinary when you think how much Toronto has changed. But, you know, the institutions are in decline and the cultural institutions in decline that we discussed earlier, which is obviously also happening in America. But it's very definitely happening in Canada. I mean, I, I feel like the spirit of Canada is um, managed to climb. 
right? Like that's that, that's already a, a tendency there. And then when you look at, can you give me a couple examples of that for folks who won't be? Well, the, the big one would be the CBC, right? Where you look at how much it's fallen apart, right? And how like it's and how it's essentially become an administrative pro forma activity with very little uh, interest in either the audience or certainly not in the creativity of its uh, of its members uh, of its performers, right? Because I mean, I know for a fact that there are hundreds of gifted audio people in the CBC as gifted as anyone in the United States, you would never know it from what they produce. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, like, and, and, you know, and they, and they all know that too. Right. I mean, they, like, it's, it's not like I'm telling them something they don't know. Like they, they absolutely know that. And meanwhile, NPR is producing or pineapple studios or audible are all producing like extraordinary stuff constantly. Um, and you know, Canada just missed out on it, you know, I mean, it's getting a little better now. Like the, the CBC, uh, podcast, are, they are getting a little, they're getting like, there are decent shows on there for sure now. Um, which I don't think was true five years ago, but you know, it's a bit late to the party. So in doing research for this new season, I, I definitely came across a lot of cool new Canadian writing that, that I didn't mm -hmm. know about what. Um, what are you excited about? What are you seeing out there right now in, in Canadian writing that's kind of catching your attention? I mean, what I'm really excited about right now is uh, generative AI, artificial intelligence. Um, I've just I've just been commissioned by Pushkin to write a an AI generated novel, and that's what I'm going to work on right after we're doing this. And I'm I'm also working with like AI is actually quite a Canadian story. Like the people who invented natural language processing as we know it, a lot of them live in this neighborhood that I'm in. I mean, I met them at the dog park and, um, you know, we're working on some fascinating stuff. I mean, one thing we're working on is a series where we've trained, um, I'm working with this engineer at, at Cohere where we've trained this story on prompts and then trained it on a series of models so that every time you click it, it's the same story told, but told in a different way every time. So essentially it's an infinitely generating textual object like it's not really even a story and then there's all sorts of other experiments that i'm i'm on i'm doing with with ai that i'm just i'm getting really obsessed with just as it's heating up in the culture i mean all you hear about now is not even chat gpt but you know bing i guess and microsoft yeah i mean you know i like i've been working on this i mean i wrote my first um algorithmically derived story for wired in 2017 I wrote a 17% computer generated story, a horror story for LA review of books. And I think it was 2020. And then I did a fully generated one for lit hub in 2021. But you know, I don't think it is, it, it has actually registered. I think what we're seeing is like people talking about it as a phenomenon, but like, this is actually going to be a new medium and there's going to be incredible artwork made out of it. And I like, we've seen a little bit of it on the visual arts side. But mostly crap, really. Like, not, like I don't think I don't think it has been. I, I don't think it has found what it is supposed to be yet. I, I, I'm excited. I think it's going to be incredible. Stephen, I want to thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating. My pleasure. You've been listening to my interview with author Stephen Marsh. I'm Paul Zakshavsky. If you enjoyed the show then I hope you'll subscribe to it. I'm always grateful for reviews and for sharing the show with friends. To read a full transcript of this and every episode, 
sign up at thebookihadtowrite.com forward slash subscribe. And if you're working on your own book you have to write, or you want to get started, maybe I can help. I love supporting experienced authors with expert advice and focused coaching. I help writers craft book drafts, agent pitches, book proposals, and more. Find out more about me and my coaching at thebookihadtowrite.com forward slash coaching. That's thebookihadtowrite.com forward slash coaching. And thanks again for listening. Thank you.